He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. I love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Season 4, Episode 8, Prank Calling Prisons. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the ongoing threat to electoral democracy posed by the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and the ongoing legal and political developments that have emanated from it. I'm Scott Kuhn. Happy holiday season to everyone who isn't triggered by the phrase holiday season. In this episode, we will be taking on inside look, or rather an inside listen, to a group that is engaging in some completely counterproductive harassment of federal employees that is certainly guaranteed to backfire on them. This is a group of Proud Boy supporters and insurrectionists who have had the bright idea that if only they call around to federal prisons where January 6th inmates are held, then the Federal Bureau of Prisons will release these inmates early. It does, of course, not in any way or sense or form work that way. I'm loath to play the audio on the podcast and subject you to their entitled whining, but I had to listen to it, so now you do too. I'm going to edit it as much as I can so that we have only the premiere bits of uh, the content that you can stomach. Um, in all seriousness, I, this group seems to be most interested in collecting the names of prison staff with whom they communicate on the phone, which leads me to believe they may be laying the groundwork for some kind of targeted harassment, uh, the same kind of targeted campaign of harassment, similar to that which was launched against Shamos and Ruby Freeman in Georgia. But before we get to that, let's get caught up on the numbers and then review some recent developments in the January 6th story. At the time of the recording of the last episode, Season 4, Episode 7, The Tomatley Plot, we had 1,193 defendants charged. Today, that total stands at 1,208, according to Jan 6 data. Actually, I think they updated that. I believe it's up to something like 1,238 since the time I wrote this. So, in any event, we have passed the 1,200 defendant milestone. Now, as I reported in my episode AFO Summer, there was a peak of activity in the summer, with 39 defendants charged in June, 37 in July, 37 in August, and 23 in September. Only 12 defendants were charged in October, but this rebounded and 28 were charged in November. So, through November, 252 defendants have been charged in 2023. Assuming that's a ceiling, this means we can expect about 500 more cases to be brought before the ex expiration of the statute of limitations, the federal statute of limitations, uh, unless there's some dramatic change. Uh, that seems unlikely. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done at the Department of Justice. There are an estimated 1,600 persons who went inside the Capitol or who committed other crimes who have yet to be identified. On top of that, there are about 1,000 persons whose identities have been provided to the government who have yet to be charged. So, even though we have hit the 1,200 defendant milestone, this is still less than a third of all defendants who could be charged, and we are not on pace to see them all charged before the expiration of the federal statute of limitations on January 6, 
2026. So law enforcement is, of course, constrained. Uh, it's been decided that these cases are only going to be heard in the D.C. District Court, um, despite the fact that these cases are going to trial at a rate that is currently 20 times higher than is true of the federal system as a whole. So for the people who've worked most closely on this, uh, docketing issues uh, loom rather large. There are only, you know, so many judges on the bench at the D.C. District Court. There are only so many hours in a day to be able to charge all these defendants, especially when, they, again, um, about 20% of them are going to trial, either bench trials or jury trials. So the only real changes that might actually increase the pipeline would be to add more judges to the D.C. District bench, which Republicans, of course, would certainly block, or for the Department of Justice to have to take the unusual step of charging these defendants in some other district. Um, and again, that, you know, Third Amendment of the Constitution, presumably crimes are to be charged in the Third Amendment, sorry, it's not the Third Amendment, in Article 3, um, crimes are to be charged in the place where they are alleged to have been committed, and that is a, a bedrock principle, so it would be kind of hard, especially after there have been so many arguments about venue, so many defendants have said, well, we don't want to be tried in D.C. because you know what those D.C. juries are like. Um, they vote Democratic and therefore are somehow biased, you know, against people who commit crimes in broad daylight on federal property while they're being videotaped. Um, I think, you know, obviously fair juries anywhere would convict, but nonetheless, a lot of arguments have been ha held in court about the need to hold these in D.C., so for them to transfer these cases out of D.C., um, you know, might be problematic, let's just say that. So there is, of course, a strong contrast between the work of volunteer sleuths and the official legal response. We have a set of institutions that seems incapable of fighting for the defense of electoral democracy in the United States in an adequate way by charging these people who have decided to use violence and occupying the Capitol as a means to achieve their purported political objective of overturning the 2020 presidential election. Now, as someone who's read hundreds of statements of fact, I'd like to be unequivocal. There's almost no case that's been prosecuted that hasn't relied, to some extent, on the contribution of online open-source intelligence community. There are hundreds of cases in which information has been submitted by sedition hunters. The DOJ has included screen captures, graphics, and documentary evidence obtained and submitted by the online sedition hunting community in almost every case that's been charged. This is true even in the cases where the DOJ is attempting to obfuscate the question of where they got their information from. Uh, they might indicate that the first investigative contact originated from an online tip, but then use a series of graphics that have been posted by sedition hunters on Twitter, um, and so there's, you know, it's various. I mean, some of this, as we've talked about in the show, there are some cases where they're very much upfront about this, and then there are other cases where they seem to want to indicate that uh, all the work was done by the FBI, even when it's documented in the statement of fact that, in point of fact, uh, if you if you know what to look for, uh, these are cases in which um, volunteers, amateurs, have provided a lot of the information. So. Overall, uh, the crowdsourced part of this has been an enormous success. 
but the ability of the actual Justice Department to keep up with it has not been. Personally, I think one of the reforms that would be useful, uh, not just for the Department of Justice, but you know, for law enforcement generally, is to have a better way for law enforcement to uh, relate to people who um, are attempting to provide them with information. Uh, we've seen this a number of times that there is a, this preference for information and contacts that are internal to law enforcement, their own investigative work, and yet um, it would seem that the collective hive mind of people who are dedicated to a cause appears to be more effective in these instances of doing open source intelligence work than uh, the career professionals who, you know, uh, again, not to cast aspersions on them, but they are working under conditions that uh, appear to be, you know, not as good as the average person who just has a laptop and internet access for some reason. So that's, that's just, you know, um, that's, that's not great. Uh, the ability of the actual Justice Department to, to keep up with the information that's been provided has been inadequate. So one of the fundamental problems, if we look historically at Weimar Germany, was that the political institutions of Weimar were incapable of doing what was needed to defend democracy in Germany from the threat of the uh, National Socialist Party. And we're seeing the same thing here again. Many of the same people who took place in part in the Brooks Brothers riots in South Florida in 2000 to stop the counting and voting of, of votes there also took part in some way in the Stop the Steal movement. Um, most notably Roger Stone, but also Matt Schlapp. They were both involved in the Brooks Brothers riot and uh, became part of the Trumpist movement. At the level of the foot soldiers, most of these people uh, who, you know, are... are Many of them, anyway, are criminals, right? We've seen this time and time again. Uh, many of the, particularly the AFO defendants, are people who have long criminal histories. And so these are people who oftentimes have committed crimes before January 6th, and some of them have committed crimes after January 6th, such as, of course, as I mentioned on the show, Taylor Taranto. Um, so these people are not just a danger to democracy, but also the community. And the failure to actually charge these defendants is an echo of the failure to actually prepare for the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. If the institutions charged with the administration of justice can't actually affirm their commitment to maintaining electoral democracy when it's under assault, then the opponents of electoral democracy will win, and sooner rather than later. And at that point, we're going to have to ask ourselves what we're willing to do to oppose the new regime. Um, it's worth noting that no country uh, during World War II was able to liberate itself from uh, the Nazis, from Nazi Germany. Um, I, I mentioned uh, in Franz Neumann's Behemoth, you know, he had this hope that German people, particularly German workers, would rise up and um, overturn, overthrow the Nazi regime. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, and it didn't happen in any of the places that were occupied. Once fascism is actually in power and the terrorist state is in place and the secret police are getting neighbors to inform on neighbors, it is very difficult to overturn it. And as we had heard in the opening audio clip, Donald Trump has promised to be a dictator. Not just generally, but just on day one, which of course... Again, if you're going to be a dictator on day one, you're probably going to be a dictator on other days as well. Um, you know, and it could just be that, like, 
he's going to say, well, you know, I just declare myself president for life. And um, everything else after that, that's not dictatorial because I'm president for life now and I'm doing it under the rule of law. Um, so, you know, do, someone who says they want to be a dictator uh, under any circumstances, do not trust them. Take them at their word that they're going to be a dictator. Do not trust them to accept any limits because a dictatorial authoritarian person is someone who's not going to accept limits. No one has imposed limits on Donald Trump for his entire lifetime. That's not going to change. And once you have Trumpism in power again, uh, they would be better prepared to nullify any Democratic victory in 2028. Again, Justice Beerhall coup, coup in 1923. Beerhall Pooch laid the groundwork for the Nazi seizure of power a decade later in 1933. So too, the Stop the Steal movement um, laid the groundwork for the distrust of electoral politics and also a kind of an institutional mechanism whereby uh, you could overturn a presidential election. Completely illegal, has no basis in law, has no base, has not been upheld by any court ruling. Nonetheless, there, you know, there is a scenario under which you could find a fake elector scheme that would actually work. And we have, we have seen very little effort, unfortunately, to actually block this. A number of states have proposed reforms to um, their state laws regarding electors, but uh, again, every state should at least, at a minimum, do this. And of course, some states are controlled by Republicans, and they are not going to do that. So, you know, a new Trump administration would obviously be awful. Um, these defendants would all be pardoned. And uh, as we saw in Nazi Germany, where people who took part in the Beer Hall Pooch were all awarded medals, and many of them wound up forming the basis, uh, the nucleus of the most loyal faction uh, to the Fuhrer, uh, we'd see the same thing, right? We would see January 6th defendants occupying spots in the new administration. So, you know, we, we'd have to deal with Stuart Rhodes as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Enrique Terrio as head of the secret police, Kelly Sorrell as the attorney general, Nick Fuentes as the White House press secretary, Simone Gold as the surgeon general, Speaker of the House George Santos, Secretary of State Federico Klein, Secretary of Defense Joe Biggs, etc. and so forth. And we might have a, a January 6th as a new holiday, um, a, you know, call it Retribution Day, uh, where, you know, these January 6th defendants would, would be national heroes and celebrated, and Patriot Front, the three percenters, would go door to door to select leaders, uh, the enemies of the leader, uh, for extermination. So those are the stakes. And the Department of Justice should do everything that they can now, while the rule of law is still something that they are charged with upholding. Uh, so if I had hair, it would be on fire at this very moment. Um, there, you know, obviously public pressure to actually arrest the thousand defendants who have been identified would be helpful. Unfortunately, many of the obstacles do appear to be structural, right? There are not, uh, you, again, you can't, add new, you can't add new judges to the bench, and you can't add more hours to the day. I don't have any handy solutions, but, you know, at least issuing charges uh, would be helpful. Uh, and maybe you can figure out a way to actually hold the trials on the back end. Just extend the court counters out. Um, you know, waive the Speedy Trial Act. 
Um, so, but something clearly must be done and should be done because these people are not just a threat to the community, but also electoral democracy. So let's look at some of the other news that has happened recently um, in the sort of world of January 6th. Trump power couple Bridget and Christian Ziegler um, face these uh, odd allegations down in Florida. So again, you know, get off my soapbox um, and let's talk about, you know, again, this news regarding the Zieglers. Um, Bridget and Kristen Ziegler, of course, of Sarasota, Florida, have had a meteoric rise in the world of Florida slash Trumpist politics. Bridget Ziegler, of course, is the founder of Moms for Liberty, which is an astroturf group whose central aim appears to be attacking trans youth, uh, members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, they want to do things like ban books that they don't like. Um, they harangue local school boards. They did run a number of candidates in school boards across the country, most of whom were resoundingly defeated at the polls. Um, so, again, you know, some people have described Moms for Liberty as the ladies' auxiliary of the Proud Boys, and it, it is, they are, they're basically a fascist group. And we've seen this, by the way. One of the, the ways that Trumpism manages to try to mask their, uh, fascist agenda is by using women's groups and women's issues, supposedly, uh, as a kind of a cover, right? We can't possibly be threatening. We're, we're women. And again, it plays into their own patriarchal and sexist worldview. Um, it's no accident that it was Women for America First who were the hosts, uh, the sponsoring organization for the Rally at the Ellipse, which, of course, was basically a rallying point uh, for the people who would then later on go on and attack the Capitol. So the, the softer, feminine face of fascism, Bridget Ziegler, is married to, of course, her husband, one Christian Ziegler, who has been the chairman of the Florida State Republican Party since February of 2023. Um, Ziegler is a big recipient of uh, the support of the evangelical community in Florida. For example, um, this is from reporting, uh, he was endorsed by one John Stemberger, a Florida evangelical attorney who's also the head of an evangelical political organization called Florida Family Action, right? These are people who believe in traditional family values. Uh, here's a pull quote from Stenberger in an article from Business Insider. There's always a link in the show notes. Quote, I wholeheartedly endorse Christian Ziegler. He is pro-life, pro-family, and a strong social conservative. End quote. And I just why why are there so many Zieglers in the, at the January 6th world? Why everybody, you know, I, I've known people named Ziegler, that most of them seem perfectly fine. Um, but for some reason, uh, you you know, of course, you've got the Garrett Ziegler, you've got the Zieglers down in Florida. And I, I think there's another Ziegler uh, somewhere in the story, uh, one of the um, fake whistleblowers, perhaps. Uh, the name of the person escapes me at the moment. But there's at least four different Zieglers uh, who are involved currently in, in Trumpist politics. In any event, if you follow the news, you know where this is going, right? So, like many people who are self-described pro-family social conservatives, it would seem that the Zieglers have a very different private life from their public life. The Sarasota police are currently conducting an investigation into Christian Ziegler for a sexual assault that's alleged to have occurred in October, on October 2nd of this year. 
It's alleged that both Zieglers admitted to police that the alleged victim of an assault is a woman with whom they were involved with as a throuple, a three-way sexual relationship that lasted for about a year. Uh, you know what? More, I'm not going to kink shame anybody. More power to them. Um, but then again, they probably shouldn't be actively involved in policing what happens in other people's bedrooms when they're practicing free love like it's 1969 and they're all. Um, it reminds me, of course, a little bit of the Ashley Babbitt story. You'll probably remember that Babbitt and her husband were also part of a throuple with another woman. Now, the worst part of the story, of course, uh, is the rape allegation against Christian Ziegler. It's alleged that the couple had made arrangements with the victim for a date, but that the woman tried to back out when she found out that it would be just her and Christian Ziegler because Bridget couldn't make their session. Uh, allegedly, the woman sent Christian Ziegler a text saying, quote, Sorry, I was mostly in it for her, end quote. Um, by the way, I mean, if you've seen pictures of Christian and Bridget Ziegler, it's easy to understand this sentiment. Um, they're very much a mismatched couple. You know, Bridget's very conventionally attractive, and Christian is basically a, a loathsome troll. Um, reminds me of, you know, I'm, I, again, I just, yeah, probably less said about that, the better. But apparently not dissuaded by the receipt of this message, Christian Ziegler shows up at the victim's house anyway, uh, where he finds her intoxicated and allegedly sexually assaults her, uh, according to a search warrant affidavit um, that has been released. So I checked both Bridget and Christian's uh, pages on the website formerly known as Twitter, and neither Ziegler has had anything to say on X since November 29th. Now, given the state of the current Republican Party, especially in Florida, it's only a matter of time before the Zieglers come out and claim that, you know what, handmaidens are a thing, uh, rape is acceptable because it's in the Bible. Um, none of the people who have really helped create their, their you know, meteoric rise uh, have really fully addressed the, the, the scope of these allegations. Um, if you look at John Stimberger, who I referenced earlier, who endorsed Christian Ziegler, uh, no mention uh, of the, the Zieglers, and in fact, he has not posted at all since November 30th. Bridget Ziegler is still in charge of Monster Liberty, and Christian is still the chairman of the Florida Republican Party. Um, some people have asked him to, to step down. Uh, Ron DeSantis has quietly called for Christian Ziegler to resign, and the chairman of the uh, Sarasota County Republican Party has done so as well. Um, but again, obviously, uh, you know, probably nothing is going to happen outside of the criminal context. Um, it's going to be up to, to law enforcement. These are people who, again, are, you know, they're bad actors. They're going to continue to grift and also to rule in the, in the interest of uh, Trumpism and far-right extremism generally. Um, now, honestly, I, I think that part of the story that is going to result, it might eventually result in some political consequences for the chairman of the Florida Republican Party is the throuple part of the story, right? That's that's the part they, they find objectionable. Uh, if this was just a, a rape allegation, um, he'd probably be fine, right? I mean, as we've seen with Trump, you know, they don't care. They do not care. Uh, this is a fundamentally misogynist movement, and uh, it says everything that one of the, quote, leading women's movements 
uh, is headed by someone who apparently uh, is married to a man who, you know, thinks nothing of uh, allegedly committing rape. Now, here's something I haven't actually had the occasion to mention in a long, long time. The January 6th civil liability case against Trump, Blazing Game versus Trump, a case that was brought by uh, two um, U.S. Capitol Police officers against Trump for the injuries they suffered uh, at the hands of the mob that Trump himself incited. When last there was any real news on the Blazing Game case, the D.C. District Court had ruled in February of 2022 that the president was, in fact, subject to civil litigation for acts undertaken while president, uh, so provided that these acts were outside the outer perimeter of his official duties. Um, that is a language and uh, that is tailored to coordinate with um, Nixon v. Fitzgerald, uh, basically, again, saying that you can't be sued when you're president if you're doing actions that are affiliated with your official duties. Um, thing is, of course, January 6th, it was basically a campaign event, or rather some kind of rally that was outside of the perimeter, the outer perimeter of the official duties of the president, arguably, anyway. So this decision of the district court, the district court level, was appealed. And it was appealed, of course, to the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, where it absolutely, apparently, languished, uh, basically, for about a year. It's taken them about a year to uh, come up with this decision, um, which is regrettable, right? I mean, the, the question of whether or not the president enjoys absolute immunity or immunity from criminal issues or immunity from civil issues, um, you know, seems to be a relevant one at our current, you know, juncture in our history. Um, on December 1st, finally, the D.C. Circuit Court issued its 67-page ruling, which essentially upholds the decision reached at the district court level. It took them, again, a, a year. Um, make a little bit of a side digression. One of the attorneys for Trump, one of his top attorneys, was Dave Warrington uh, from the Dillon Law Group. And, of course, this name was immediately familiar to me. Uh, Warrington also represented a total of nine different witnesses, Trumpist witnesses, key witnesses who testified before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. And you can get a sense of how important these witnesses are uh, by the fact that Warrington represented them, that the same person who's handling this very key civil case in D.C. is also someone uh, who's charged with uh, representing these various witnesses, who I'll go into right now. So who did he represent before the committee? John, or Johnny McEntee, who was uh, basically the head of human resources, the personnel office in the Trump White House. Kylie Kramer from Women for America First. Uh, of course, again, the organization that sponsored the rally as a pretext. Um, also, of course, Amy Kramer of Women for America First. Deputy Communications Director Andrew Zachary Parkinson, uh, a White House official quite close to Trump. Michigan fake elector Kathy Burden. Um, Michael, Michael Roman, of course, who we know Trump's key operative, his political operative in the fake electors plot. Charles Bowman, also from Women for America's for America First. Uh, and Michael Flynn of the Flynn organization, mentioned him in the context of the Tamale plot. And uh, finally, 
um, Laura Cox, the chair of the Republic, Michigan Republican Party, and also a key participant in the fake electors plot. All these rather big deal witnesses, right? And you can see they're, they're what the Trump strategy was. They, you know, these the fact that they handed these defendants, these witnesses rather, uh, off to this uh, rather closely allied attorney uh, shows the importance of these witnesses and you know key areas of vulnerability. Uh, the Tamatli plot, right? Flynn is involved in that. The fake electors plot, which is probably you know resulted in more charges uh, than any other part of the January six story at the sort of the, the elite VIP organizer level. Um, and I also think that uh, something I'm going to talk about in a minute: um, revelations regarding uh, the attempted riot and at, in Detroit. Um, shows perhaps, that could perhaps be one of the reasons why Michigan uh, seems to have been such an important focus uh, among the various states. Um, you know, it could be that they realize that they left their, their footprints all over this and that uh, it's clear the corrupt intent uh, when you're trying to, to sponsor a riot. So, you know, um, and of course, Women for America First, right? The, the group that founded or rather sponsored the rally at the ellipse. So again, also two key White House staffers who are particularly close to Trump. Johnny McEntee, of course, again, someone who, you know, is um, highly suspicious uh, and particularly close to Trump, basically uh, Trump, Trump's former body man as slash Aaron Boy, uh, someone who was absolutely loyal to Trump and Andrew Zachary Parkinson, again, another Trump loyalist, people who are well positioned to know what was happening inside the White House uh, on or about January 6th and in the run-up to January 6th. So let's look at the, the actual, the case itself, uh, Blazing Game. Um, the three judges on the case were Chief Judge Sri Srivasanan, uh, an Obama appointee, Circuit Judge Gregory Katsis, a Trump appointee, and Sen Senior Circuit Court Judge Judith Rogers a Clinton appointee whose legal career began in 1965. Judge Srivastanen wrote the opinion of the court, uh, Katzis wrote a concurrence, and Rogers wrote a concurrence in part. It may be worth noting that Katzis had been a partner at Jones Day, the same law firm that helped Trump set up the Save America PAC slush fund that I've just talked about uh, quite a bit on the show, um, that, that fund, of course, being used to launder money from the uh, T-Magic fundraising campaign that was supposed to establish a fund for election litigation, but actually basically just became a slush fund that Trump used for whatever purposes uh, he deemed fit. Um, particularly, uh, a lot of the witness testimony, a lot of the, the fees for the attorneys who represented witnesses before the January 6th committee uh, were funded by um, the Save America PAC. So, I know there's, there's been a lot of reporting on this decision. Um, I, I'm actually going to quote from Katz's concurrence. Um, he's, it's very Weasley, right? I mean, ultimately, he does side with the opinion of the court, but he's, in his concurrence, he tries to try uh, and uh, qualify that. Um, he writes, quote, In particular, the complainants allege that the January 6th rally was organized by campaign staff and funded by private donors, and was neither facilitated by White House staff 
nor paid for with congressionally appropriated funds. Given the, these allegations, which remain to be tested in summary judgment or at trial, we cannot resolve the immunity question in President Trump's favor at this stage of the case. Page 55. So, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's a bit of a waffle on his part, right? I mean, the, the, the fact that, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually farcical in a sense. I mean, to say that, well, this, this, these propositions haven't been tested. These are facts. I mean, the fact is, this was done as, you know, a campaign event. Campaign staff were involved, not White House staff, um, although, you know, there is some overlap there. But you know, the main organization was an outside group. And again, Trump was careful to do that. They explicitly and expressly wanted an outside group to sponsor the rally of the lips. Um, Women for America First, you know, is basically a kind of a cover for Trump. It's another layer of separation from him, you know, to separate him from the, the actual purpose and function of the rally of the ellipse, which is basically, again, a means to gather these various insurrectionists together for their march to the Capitol. And had he done it through the official offices of the president, you would have had far more scrutiny. You would have had far more people from outside Trump's inner circle examining what was happening. You would have had uh, far more, in other words, accountability, oversight, and importantly, limitations on what they could actually do. He wanted to have some plausible deniability. And so, you know, the rally is not organized by the White House. Um, it is organized by Women for America First in contact with his campaign. And again, this is part of his pattern. It's the same reason that he always does his crimes through his attorneys, right? You know, attorney-client privilege for that has the added benefit of acting as a kind of a shield for him. Um, and of course, uh, at the end of the day, if everything goes south for him, he can always just uh, use the attorneys as fall guys, um, as we saw, of course, in the case of Michael Cohen. So, again, kind of a Weasley tone, but Cassis endorses the opinion of the court, um, which, uh, you know, significant, right? Because even Trump appointees, once again, ruling against Trump. Quote, and again, reading from uh, his uh, concurrence, how then to distinguish official from private presidential speech on matters of public concern? The court stresses an objective inquiry into the context of the speech, substantially informed by whether it is clothed in the trappings of an official function, i.e. whether it is organized and promoted by official White House channels and funded with public resources. In some instances, this inquiry will yield clear answers. Campaign or other political events are unofficial. White House staff may not work on them, and congressionally appropriated funds may not support them. Accordingly, when the president speaks at campaign events, whether in political conventions, debates, advertisements, rallies, or fundraisers, he normally does so in a private capacity, as a candidate for re-election or as a leader of his party. On the other hand, many other kinds of presidential speech are obviously official. For instance, the State of the Union Address, a formal address from the Oval Office, or a press conference from the White House Press Briefing Room. It's from page 57. So again, I mean, both Trump and Roger Stone have endorsed the view that Trump's appointees are his creatures who are bound to do his will in all things. So despite the, the Weasley tone of his concurrence, it's reassuring that it is a concurrence and not a dissent. In other words, along with the rest of the court, 
Judge Katsas rejected Trump's claims of absolute immunity from civil action on the basis of this outer perimeter. Uh, this decision, again, consistent with Nixon v. Fitzgerald and this concept of this outer perimeter of official duties. So this decision is not only consequential uh, for the um, cases that are, are moving forward, uh, you know, with regard to the civil liability, but also for other cases in D.C., as it appears, again, to, you know, be the, the highest court that has addressed these various immunity issues with regard to uh, President Trump. And uh, even though, of course, the, the case before uh, the D.C. Circuit Court was a civil case, and the case before Judge Chutkin in March is a criminal case, she's going to wind up, no doubt, making reference to this decision when the subject of immunity is raised, as it will be again, um, by the way. Um, so unless the Supreme Court overturns this decision, the idea that the president possesses absolute immunity in civil or liberal ma criminal matters has been decided. And I personally think that the Supreme Court is not going to hear the appeal. Um... I, they, I believe they will deny certiorari and thereby affirm the verdict of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, that's been the pattern in the Roberts, course with, Roberts Court with regard to Trump. Uh, not only are they not ruling in Trump's favor, they have oftentimes refused to hear his appeals. So I think that, that may, that's the most likely outcome in this instance. Uh, it would be a bombshell. By the way, if they were to actually do this, uh, if they were to actually overturn uh, this bedrock principle that the president is not above the law, if the presidency becomes a license to commit crimes, then only criminals will seek the office of the president. That's what that's what we'll see. So, yeah, a lot of things have been happening in the cases involving Trump, almost as if the judges are clearing their desks so they can go home for the holidays. Um, in another case, as I mentioned, uh, related to Blasingame, and that it also involves immunity, Judge Chutkin has ruled that the president does not enjoy absolute immunity. In her 48-page decision, Chutkin rejected Trump's motion to dismiss, and uh, I will link to her decision in the short show notes. Great decision, uh, worthy of a whole episode, but uh, there are other podcasts that, quite frankly, have legal analysis from actual attorneys. So I'm actually going to highlight a, an issue in her opinion that I'm better qualified to address, which is a point that she makes uh, in her decision that I believe should be obvious. Sovereign immunity is a doctrine that dates to the era of divine right monarchy, but the founders didn't believe in divine right monarchy. In fact, they were suspicious of the power of the executive, they did not want to create an elected king, and explicitly rejected creating an executive that would be above the law. So, Citing her opinion, quote, to the contrary, America's founding generation envisioned a chief executive wholly different from the unaccountable, almost omnipotent rulers of other nations at that time. In Federalist Number 69, entitled The Real Character of the Executive, Alexander Hamilton emphasized the, quote, total dissimilitude between the president and the king of Great Britain, end quote, the latter being sacred and invaluable in that there is no constitutional tribunal to which he is amenable, the, the king that is, no punishment to which he can be subjective. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, uh, that's just a citation there. Hamilton's contemporary commentators universally affirmed the crucial distinction that the president would at some point 
be subject to criminal process. Found, sorry. So there was a founding era consensus that presidents would lack absolute criminal immunity, but noting that most commentary was ambiguous about whether prosecution would occur during the presidency or only after. That was a parenthetical comment uh, included with a citation. That widely acknowledged contrast between the president and a king is even more compelling for a former president. The Constitution's silence on former president's criminal immunity thus does not reflect an understanding that such immunity existed. Uh, pages 7 to 8 of her decision. So again, we are not living in a divine right monarchy. The president does not possess absolute sovereign immunity. He's not a king. That should be obvious to people who have even a rudimentary understanding of U.S. history. Um, but again, I don't think it's an accident that Trumpist attorneys are making arguments that the president is basically an elected king. And I'll return again to uh, Franz Neumann, his understanding of fascism as a system that borrows freely from actual systems of thought, even though he doesn't regard fascism as a real system of uh, political thought. Trump leans heavily on monarchical modes of legitimacy. I mean, you see this in the symbolism. Uh, you see this, you know, with all this lion imagery, uh, you know, the quote, king of beasts, right, that kind of thing. Um, now, this decision, of course, is going to be subject to appeal, but, of course, Judge Shutkin is correct, and it should be obvious that the presidency isn't a license to commit crimes. Uh, that's the opposite of the intention of the founders. And, again, if, if it, the presidency becomes a license to commit crime, then only criminals will be president. In the same case, this is, again, the D.C. election interference case, there's also a new nine-page filing related to the rules of evidence that was filed on December 5th. Uh, again, link in the show notes. Jack Smith writes about the kind of evidence that he's going to produce that will show that Trump intended to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. So here is Jack Smith's thesis from uh, this latest filing. Quote, The defendant's consistent refusal to submit to commit to a peaceful transition of power, dating back to the 2016 presidential campaign, is admissible evidence of his plan to undermine the integrity of the presidential transition process when faced with the possibility of an election result that he would not like, as well as his motive, intent, and plan to interfere with the implementation of an election result with which he was not satisfied. Page 1. And so... Uh, again, what he does is he outlines the kinds of evidence and what they're going to show. A lot of it, again, going to intent, mens rea being an important component of the crime. There's also this rather explosive detail that hints at the strength of Smith's case, uh, because it goes to actions and parts of the story that have been undercovered, uh, even though parts of them have been known about for quite some time. Quote, the government also plans to include, uh, introduce evidence of an effort undertaken by an agent and unindicted co-conspirator of the defendant who worked for his campaign, the campaign employee, to, immediately following the election, obstruct the vote count. On November 4th, 2020, the campaign employee exchanged a series of text messages with an attorney supporting the campaign's election day operations at the TCF Center in Detroit, where votes were being counted. 
In the messages, the campaign employee encouraged rioting and other methods of obstruction when he learned that the vote count was trending in favor of the defendant's opponent. Pages 3 to 4. Now, this is followed by a rather long redacted section, which is usually where all the good stuff usually resides. Uh, there's eight lines of redacted material. What's in this section? Well, obviously, we don't know. Normally, we really know the identity of the campaign employee. We do know that Mike Roman was in Detroit on that day because he posted video uh, on November 4th showing he was in Detroit. Um, so, yeah. Um, there are, of course, other campaign employees. Uh, he was head of Election Day operations. Uh, why was he in Detroit, by the way? Uh, again, the whole emphasis is on disenfranchising urban voters, particularly black voters. And so they always had the strategy of trying to claim that there was fraud in these majority-minority cities, even when, of course, there was no fraud, right? I mean, the idea is absurd, you know, that... Trump thought he was going to win Detroit. He wasn't ever going to win Detroit. Um, but again, Roman's there monitoring the voting, monitoring the, the tallying of the votes, and when they start to lose, surprise, surprise, uh, decides to try to organize, uh, again, something like a Brooks Brothers riot, allegedly. Um, if this is Roman. Uh, if it's not Roman, it's someone who works for and works with Mike Roman. So, what's in this redacted section? Well, Messages, apparently, because the next section, after the redacted section, references messages, presumably text messages, that indicate a plot to stage something like a Brooks Brothers-style riot. Quote, the government will also show that around the time of these messages, again, this immediately follows the redacted section, so this appears to refer to the evidence that's in the redacted section. Around the time of these messages, an election official at the TCF Center observed that as Biden began to take the lead, a large number of untrained individuals flooded the TCF Center and began making illegitimate and aggressive challenges to the vote count. Thereafter, Trump made repeated false claims regarding election activities at the TCF Center, when in truth his agent was seeking to cause a riot to disrupt the count. This evidence is admissible to demonstrate that the defendant, his co-conspirators, and agents had knowledge that the defendant had lost the election, as well as their intent and motive to obstruct and overturn the legitimate results. From page 4 of that filing. Now again, uh, there's this video from Mike Roman posted on the website formerly known as Twitter, well, it was still Twitter back then, on November 4th, 2020. Uh, you can find it if you're on Twitter, uh, purporting to show again Republican poll workers being ejected from the TCF Center in Detroit. It's a very short video, and, you know, it's kind of, it's like, it doesn't show, like, what leads to it. It doesn't show that these, you know, people who have received no poll watcher training at all are, in fact, growing increasingly aggressive and, uh, you know, demand, making outrageous demands, uh, consistent, you know, with the pattern of behavior that we've uh, observed from Trump. This is the abandoned strategy of just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. In this instance, it's just have random chuds show up and yell at election workers and claim that these people are legitimate poll workers when, in fact, they're, they're not. So we do know that Roman produced some material for the committee, um, but 
we don't know, of course, if that's what this is referring to. Um, I didn't find, actually, uh, you know, I, it, wouldn't put, it would not surprise me if there is other material that perhaps the government has obtained uh, that is not yet, or isn't, didn't appear in the official record of the committee, even though I, I reviewed his transcript. Um, and again, Roman took fifth in answer to almost every question. So it's, you know, it's hard to, to gauge very much from his committee transcript. So, yeah, we don't know who the messages are from, we don't know who they're to, but, you know, if they've got this evidence, it probably means that there's, they've got really good documentary evidence showing that they tried to stage a Brooks Brothers, Brooks Brothers riot in Detroit. And the filing also shows that the government intends to prove that Trump had a history of inciting violence and an intent to incite violence on January 6th. Quote, the defendant has an established pattern of using public statements and social media posts to subject his perceived adversaries to threats and harassment. At trial, the government will introduce evidence of this conduct. The indictment includes examples of the defendant's targeting, including against his vice president, including the defendant's public endorsement and encouragement of violence, and further will elicit testimony for witnesses about the threats and harassment they received after the defendant targeted them in relation to the 2020 election. So, again, you know, we know about the story of Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Um, Smith cites this. He cites Trump's stand back and stand by comment in his September 2020 debate with Biden. Um, he, he attacked, you know, again, the various statements regarding Mike Pence. The, Jack Smith and the government also promises that they will, quote, introduce evidence at trial showing that in the years since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the defendant has openly and proudly supported individuals who have criminally participated in obstructing the congressional certification that day, including by suggesting that he will pardon them if re-elected, even as he has conceded that he had no ability to influence their actions during the attack. Page 8. And again, that's an extraordinary mission again, right? He's like, Oh, I wasn't able to influence these people. I wasn't able to call them off, but nonetheless, I will pardon them. It's obvious. It's out in the open, and they're going to call them on it. And really happy to see them doing that, obviously. There's a lot of material on that. Uh, it would It's going to take days for them to introduce this kind of evidence. Um, there's all those comments on Truth Social that point in this direction. Uh, the government also notes that Trump made this statement regarding Enrique Terrio. Quote, I want to tell you, he and other people have been treated horribly, end quote. And it also notes that uh, Trump claimed that the sentences for members of the Trumpist mob have been far too long for his liking, and it also cites his support for the choir in the so-called Patriot Wing in D.C., and his airing of their version of the national anthem at his events, and his claims that he that these people are, quote, political prisoners and or hostages, um, and also evidence that he has supported these people financially. So that's an interesting claim, and it could lead to all kinds of discovery material regarding expenditures by Trump, his affiliates, and organizations. Who knows? Maybe they even already have a lot of this evidence. Maybe we're going to see evidence regarding, for example, Sidney Powell's payments to the defense team of Stuart Rhodes and other Oath Keepers. Smith ends the filing thusly. Quote, 
evidence of the defendant's post-conspiracy embrace of particularly violent and notorious rioters is admissible to establish the defendant's motive and intent on January 6th, that he sent supporters, including groups like the Proud Boys, whom he knew were angry and whom he now calls patriots, to the Capitol to achieve his criminal objective of obstructing the congressional certification. In addition, his statements in this time period agreeing that he had he then held, and still holds, enormous influence over his supporters' actions is evidence of his knowledge and intent to obstruct the certification. As he chose not to exercise that influence to mitigate the violence on January 6th. Perhaps most importantly, the defendant's embrace of January 6th rioters is evidence of his intent during the charged conspiracies because it shows that these individuals acted as he directed them to act. Indeed, this evidence shows that the rioters' disruption of the certification proceeding is exactly what the defendant intended on January 6th. And finally, evidence of the defendant's statements regarding possible pardons for January 6th offenders is admissible to help the jury assess the credibility and motives of trial witnesses. Because through such comments, the defendant is publicly signaling that the law does not apply to those who act at his urging, regardless of the legality of their actions. Page 9 from the uh, December 5th filing. Now, I'll, I'll leave the, the legal analysis of this to other people who are better qualified to do it, um, but again, it's notable there's evidence that we have not seen. There are going to be elements of the crime that have been undercovered. Um, you know, the direct involvement, again, I've all along maintained the importance of Mike Roman. Uh, there are a lot of people who think, you know, co-conspirator six number is, is Boris Epstein. I actually think it's Roman. Uh, because, again, with the whole, you know, he's not an attorney thing. I realize I disagree with the New York Times. Um, but whoever it is, wherever they got this information, uh, and, again, I think also the focus on his interactions with the rioters, his support for the attackers, um, is going to be, you know, pretty good evidence that the government has to demonstrate that Trump intended to incite the riot, that they were incited, that he didn't stop them, that he knows his words had an impact on them, um, and that he, he knew, basically, that he could count on these various components of the mob to attack the Capitol and obstruct the certification of the electoral vote. And again, examples of uh, activities that he conducted through the fake electors scheme and through his allegations regarding, uh, you know, Detroit, Philadelphia, and other majority-minority cities, um, which, again... Uh, you know, is part of what's being charged here, right? Um, the fact that he is effectively denying certain communities of their right to vote or to have their votes adequately counted. So, obviously, the, yeah, there's, there's more that we can expect. I, I should mention, at least in passing, the so-called release of video by uh, Speaker Mike Johnson, who has released a tiny proportion of the video and has publicly stated his intention to blur the faces of defendants or you know, suspects or people, persons of interest at the attack on the Capitol uh, in releasing the security video from the Capitol on January 6th. Cross the American people to draw their own conclusions. We should not, they should not be dictated by some narrative and accept that as fact. So they can review the tapes themselves. Uh, we're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events.
offensive that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other uh, you know concerns and problems. So that's an extraordinary admission on Mike Johnson's part. Speaker Johnson says that he wants to blur the faces of these potential criminal defendants so that they won't be charged by the Department of Justice. So, in other words, this is obstruction of justice. He has evidence of a crime, and he is altering that evidence in order to prevent defendants from being charged. How is that not obstruction of justice? This is a full mask-off moment for Mike Johnson. It's an incredibly stupid thing for him to say. He is uh, basically an accessory after the fact. He's committing obstruction of justice openly, endorsing it, and presenting it as somehow a legitimate function of his office. It's absolutely bizarre. Um, I have a couple of mantras, of course. There's never anything exculpatory. You look at the video, there's never anything exculpatory. In fact, it usually only gets worse. And he admits if he were to uh, release the unaltered video, then this could result in more identifications, as I believe um, there's already been three identifications made on the basis of video that has already been released. Um, they keep claiming they're going to blur it, but they've released an awful lot of unblurred video. And um, there are, you know, as you know, many people on January 6th are covered. There's different problems with camera angles. Uh, people, you know, who are, like, off in the distance. There's not good face shots. And yet, you know... Every time they release more video, uh, the people who have been working these cases, thank you for your service, find more evidence to be able to identify more suspects. Now, whether or not, of course, by the way, you know, identifications, as I've mentioned, over a thousand people have been identified who have been uncharged. So uh, even if they, you know, wind up getting identified, um, the question of whether or not the FBI actually charges them is an open one. Nonetheless, uh, what Mike Johnson is doing is a full mask off moment. Uh, shows you know how why he is Speaker of the House right now, how central he is to the Sedition Caucus, and uh, the fact that this conspiracy to obstruct the prosecution of January 6th defendants is ongoing. And who knows? Maybe Jack Smith will actually wind up including this uh, in as some of the evidence in the Trump proceedings in March. By the way, also in somewhat related news, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy has announced that he is resigning from Congress effective January 1st. So, apparently if he doesn't get to be Speaker anymore, he doesn't want to continue to represent the people of his district. This, of course, uh, with the expulsion of George Santos, means that the Republicans will have a two-vote majority in the House. And that's, you know, this, there's, there's no other way to, this is a, basically a giant fuck you to uh, Speaker Johnson and the other members, uh, who, you know. And, of course, it's not all in principle, right? McCarthy's not do, making a principled stance, but, you know, he waited until after Santos was expelled and then said, ha, here you go, enjoy your two-vote majority. Um, he's probably, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe he'll wind up on Fox News, although I doubt it. Um, he wasn't popular enough with the MAGA people uh, to, to, you know, remain as Speaker. Uh, he may not be popular enough to uh, get a job on OAN or Fox News. Um, most logical thing for someone like him, of course, would be to go to K Street, uh, one of the various lobbying outfits there, uh, so that he can sell himself to the highest bidder. But Kevin McCarthy, 
former Speaker of the House, uh, is going to soon be a former member of Congress. He is quitting, he's taking his bat, he's going home, um, and, you know, presumably going to cash in somewhere. So, in this section we're going to be talking about a uh, recorded space on the website formerly known as Twitter from the 29th of November 2023. So, many of you, or some of you who do open source intelligence work on January 6th will be familiar with this character called The General. The General regularly hosts spaces uh, regarding January 6th related issues and is uh, an extremist. Basically, he's a Trumpist extremist. And I want to talk about this because it's actually a, a little bit of a microcosm of the Trumpist, um, the, the, the entire Trumpist movement in audio form. So I'm not going to play the whole space uh, way too long. And honestly, these people's voices are annoying uh, and grating to me. I'll go through uh, much of it in transcribed form. I, yeah, I took the time to do a transcript on this. And um, let me describe what's happening, what's going on, uh, who the participants are, and what they think they're going to accomplish. So these are a group of activists who support members of the Proud Boys paramilitary gang, of course, uh, you know, the self-described uh, right-wing death squads, right? Uh, Jeremy Bartino would wear patch RWDS, uh, you know, other Proud Boys as well. Um, there, there are two Proud Boys supporters in the chat, uh, Helena Gibson and Suzanne Monk, who I believe are, you know, major instigators of this a campaign of targeted harassment directed at federal law enforcement officials in the prison system. Um, and also one Barbara Turpin. Barbara Turpin is the mother of Dominic Pizzola, who you will remember, of course, as being the person who effectuated the first breach of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, when he broke a window using a stolen riot shield and thereby gained access to the U.S. Capitol. So the Proud Boys were the tip of the spear. Dominic Pizzola was at the tip of the Proud Boys at that moment. And he winds up, of course, being sentenced and is now currently serving his sentence in Butner, North Carolina. Uh, it's a federal correctional complex, uh, and he is situated at what is called the Deuce, uh, which is a medium security facility. Uh, you know, personally, I think all these guys should be at USPs, right? Maximum security facilities. But still, it's an appropriate custody level for someone uh, such as Pozzola, who has a documented history of violence and political extremism. So how did this all begin? Um, it began on November 28th, 2023, uh, again, when Barbara Turpin, whose ex-handle is Barbara J. Turpin 2, posted the following on X, the website formerly known as Twitter. Proud Mama, that's her Twitter uh, alter ego, please make a call to action. This is uh, to uh, the, the host of the space, the general. Please make a call to action. Dominic and all prisoners are getting locked down unjustly. Guard's name is, I'm going to redact that, um, it's the surname of a officer at uh, the facility, and also email BTF. Exactly, actually, she misspells it, but it is the uh, email address 
of the executive assistant um, at uh, FCC Buckner. So, what does that mean? Well, okay, if you're in prison, by the way, you should expect lockdowns, right? So, for example, if there's a stabbing uh, on a unit or somewhere else, doesn't really matter. It's at the officer's discretion to have a lockdown. They have to check with the lieutenant. Uh, there's a process, and they can have a lockdown. They can lock them down for the safety and security of the institution. That is perfectly legitimate. But again, Barbara doesn't specify why this lockdown occurred, but they are part of the routine of prison life. And if you don't like it, don't commit federal felonies. It's kind of easy. Um, but she's very upset that her son has been subjected to a lockdown, as she says, unjustly. But again, lockdowns are something that are done in order to ensure the safety, not just of staff, but also inmates. And so she's hooked herself up with the, these activists, the General, uh, Helena Gibson, uh, Suzanne Monk, and others. And what are they trying to do? Well, one of the things that I observed them doing, or listened to them doing, is that they are trying to get the names of everyone with whom they come into contact. And I believe that this is part of a pattern, right? If you remember Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, uh, they're trying to get the names of federal workers so that they can target them for harassment. And again, this is not something that I, I believe uh, people who have families in the federal prison system should be doing, right? This is not in your interest to be doing this because, um, you know, it is not something that you're going to get some negative attention eventually if you engage in this kind of campaign of targeted harassment. So under the guise of so-called activism on behalf of inmates, they are in fact trying to obtain the names of federal prison staff. And to my mind, that is a line that I think that um, the federal government ought to take uh, very seriously, because remember, this is a paramilitary gang whose membership has loyalty. They have all these gang formations, they have gang colors. This is a, they've become, by the fact of, by virtue of their crimes, they've moved from a politically extreme gang uh, that is active in Trump's causes into becoming a prison gang. That is what they are now. And so this is not the first time this has come up for uh, federal officers or people in the federal prison system. In fact, these are people who deal with gangs all the time. And yet, again, most gangs don't engage in this kind of uh, behavior with regard to harassment. But it is a thing that has occasionally happened where people who are uh, working in federal law enforcement have to deal with gang threats. So, you know, how are they going to respond to this? You know, I, I don't really know, but it's not going to go great for the general Barbara or anyone else involved. This is not the way you get things done. And again, during the call, they keep asking for people's names. They want your name. I want your name. I, you know, all the while, this character, the general, isn't giving his own name. He's not giving his name. He wants everyone else's name. He wants the name of everyone he talks to on the phone. But when it comes his turn to identify himself, he refuses to give his name. He'll put, give Barbara Turpin's name, but he won't give his own name. So, again, in the space of these various activists uh, who represent various different factions within the uh, January 6th um, crime family are, uh, you know, people who are basically families of inmates, 
uh, charged with, with crimes of violence on January 6, 2021. Um, they have uh, people who are, you know, supposedly family members of inmates. I'm sure Barbara Turpin is who she says she is. Um, the space itself, of course, was public and recorded. It's available online. I'm not going to post a link to it. I'm sorry, you're going to have to actually go on Twitter and find it yourself. But you, you know, if you listen to this podcast, uh, you can probably find the General's X space from November 29th, 2023. Um, now, again, it should be noted that several of the inmates referenced in the space are known members of the Proud Boys, uh, which, of course, again, violent paramilitary gang and uh, leadership was convicted of seditious conspiracy. Interestingly, Pozzola not convicted on that count, um, but nonetheless was part of the uh, important uh, trial involving the leadership and members of the MOST, uh, the Ministry of Self-Defense Group. Now, the Proud Boys, of course, use online group chat programs as a means of planning, right? So, I mean, several of these sessions have been recorded and introduced into evidence at their various trials at the D.C. District Court. So this is how they operate. You know, they're a real-world gang, but they also operate in online spaces. Now, what happens on this call? Well, the participants raise various concerns regarding conditions at Bureau of Prisons facilities, and they announced a plan to advocate for their inmates to become more comfortable and they also claim they, they are interested now in improving prison conditions for other federal inmates. But again, most concerning part, I believe that a lot of this is just a pretext to obtain the identities of BOP staff. Because the very first thing, the way that this all begins, is when Barbara Turpin gives the surname of an officer to the general. That's the very first public communication that kicks off this campaign of targeted harassment of federal employees. And they're, they're harassing them at work, and who knows what would happen if they were to get the identities of these persons, of the identities of federal staff, of federal law enforcement officers, what they would do. Now, obviously, you know, Proud Boys, classified by a terrorist or, as a terrorist organization by Canada, uh, that's the country of the origin of uh, the founder of the Proud Boys, Gavin McInnes, who claims not to be officially affiliated with the Proud Boys at present, but of course he has carried on an unofficial relationship since his official resignation from the Proud Boys in November of 2018. And of course, although the Proud Boys have claimed to uh, support law enforcement, they're also a group that has multiple members who've been convicted of assaulting law enforcement. Um, and that's, again, that's a matter of concern because if you've got people who assault law enforcement, you put them in a federal prison, all staff are federal law enforcement. Every person on the staff, that's they are all federal law enforcement. They all receive federal law enforcement training. And so this record of violence against law enforcement, you know, is threatening. And obtaining the names of staff presents a security hazard uh, for the safety and security of the institution. Um... In fact, you know, it's not just limited January 6th. Like, one member of the Proud Boys, uh, Nathan Pelham, shot at law enforcement earlier this year 
when his father called law enforcement to do a welfare check on his son after he learned that his son was going to be charged in the January 6th attack. So these are people who are still dangerous. They were dangerous before January 6th, uh, the Millie Maggot March and other events and in the summer of 2020, and they're still dangerous today. Estimates of Proud Boy membership uh, ranged from the low hundreds to over 6,000. Uh, in 2021, the Southern Poverty Law Center tallied 72 Proud Boys chapters nationally, an increase of 43 in 2020. An increase from 43 in 2020. And, of course, most of the two, two of the most important officers of the Proud Boys at the time of the January 6th attack were State Chapter President Charles Donahoe and MOSD member Jeremy Bertino, both of whom are North Carolina residents, and the prison where Pizzola is located is also in North Carolina. Moreover, the Proud Boys have had, uh, they have an active chapter in the state. Um, they've attended events in Raleigh wearing their gang colors of black and gold. And so this continued even after the January 6th attack. So the Proud Boys were able to muster a crowd of about 100 gang members and their associates for protest against COVID-19 uh, protection policies in Raleigh on Saturday, March 20th, 2021. So the Proud Boys are still a force in North Carolina. So even though you have these online activists and the ringleaders in Texas, uh, nonetheless, they, they could reach out to members of the gang resident in North Carolina. So I've transcribed the space. I'm not going to go through every detail of it. I will play the most salient part, uh, which is the conversation where they actually call up staff in Butner to attempt to harass them. I do want to emphasize that these are people who are, um, they're not bright, right? So they make a number of assumptions. Uh, you know, they seem to assume the North Carolina governor, Roy Cooper, has some say in the operation of BOFP facilities in North Carolina. Of course, he's a Democrat. Um, and doesn't really have control over the federal facilities in the state. Although, you know, they make it clear, oh, you know, yeah, that's, that's the second thing, right? They call, they call the prison first in the transcript. I don't think I'm going to play this other part. But they then call the office of the governor uh, of the state of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, as though Roy Cooper has some say in how Butner is actually run. And they seem to think that they can call anyone and just demand things and that they will happen. That is basically how these people's minds operate. You know, just like they thought they could overturn an election by storming the Capitol on January 6th and obstructing the vote count, they also think that they have every right to just call random people, uh, people who actually have, you know, are in positions of some authority, and to just demand things. Um, I mean, th these, are, these are simple people, right? Um, but they're supporters of an organization whose entire history uh, is marked by political violence. Um, so I'm just going to go through some, some of my, my own notes. Uh, at the 10.30 mark, 10 minutes, 30 seconds, the general, uh, the leader of this space, claims that, quote, what we are going to be doing is demanding that we communicate with these prisoners, that the family members of these inmates have a chance to contact their loved ones today, end quote. By the way, that's not how it works. Um, they, of course, you know, as inmates have minutes, they are assigned. You don't get to add extra minutes just because you have uh, some militia member calling to harass people in the federal prison system. And by the way, again, um, several people are willing to identify themselves publicly uh, in the call. Suzanne Monk, for example, 
uh, perfectly willing to identify herself. Consistently, the general refuses not to give his name, but his name is actually Eric Braden. Um, I confirmed this with a couple of different people who spent a lot more time in his spaces than I do. And then, um, at, at, literally the very same day that I was looking to see, well, how can I firm up this identification, um, the general came out on Twitter and basically, I, you know, I mean, it apparently can't be much of a secret. So even though he doesn't want to give his name on the call, he does, in fact, give his name on Twitter and identifies himself, uh, his, his own personal information. So on the 4th of December, 2023, uh, the general posts a reply to at Joe Talk Show and Barry Rossi. And he says, quote, Eric fucking Braden, the most rebellious SOB that you'll ever meet. And I got the receipts to prove it. I speak truth, and I've hurt many feelings for doing so. About to kick some prison's asses tomorrow, if you care to join. I'm not unhinged, ellipsis. I'm a pure Texas asshole. End quote. So, he's no longer anonymous. He's gone full mass off, you know, and has publicly identified himself as Eric Braden. So, uh, however, that, that, that identification was never tentative, but at least he is now... Uh, given his actual identity. So who is Eric Braden and why is this a concern? Well, he is associated with the North Texas Patriot Boys, this sort of wannabe uh, halfway between the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys. Um, and, you know, I, I always thought that the name that the Patriot Boys was kind of just like, okay, well, I want to start my own group um, that is, you know, kind of like the Proud Boys, but we're all already three percenters, so let's just, you know, come up with a new name. And that's, that's kind of, it seems to me, to be the origin of the name. Uh, it's a bit of an homage, and, um, of course, uh, we have mentioned the North Texas Patriot Boys, uh, in earlier episodes of the podcast. You may remember Donald Hazard and Lucas Denny. Lucas Denny and Alan Hazard are AFO defendants, also members of this group, the North Texas Patriot Boys. They've both been convicted of assaulting a federal officer. Hazard is at FCI Beaumont in Texas, and Lucas Denny is at FCI Florence in Colorado. Uh, that's the one that's next to the ADX. So they're, they have released dates, by the way, in 2025. So that's not great. Uh, one would have hoped they would have gotten longer sentences than that. So this, these are affiliate. He's an affiliate of this organization that has people who have been convicted of assault on a federal officer and who are now serving time in POP uh, facilities. So Braden also um, is known to have been at the Stop the Steal rally in Atlanta uh, in the run up to January six. Uh, he brought a, a group of men who were armed with rifles uh, to a, the, that particular event. And Braden is currently running for governor of the state of Texas on a campaign of secession, because that worked out so great last time. So he wants to, Texas to secede from the Union. And he was also arrested for criminal trespass on December 29th, 2020, at an anti-mask protest at the North Star Mall in San Antonio. Uh, he was 39 at the time of his arrest, which would put him, depending upon when his birthday is, uh, at, at either like 43 or 44, sorry, 42 or 43. Um, so he's, he's in his early 40s in any event. 
is a member of a noon paramilitary gang organization and is directly collaborating with people who are family members and longtime associates of the Proud Boys to advocate on behalf of the Proud Boys. Now, Braden, of course, again, self-identifies himself as a pure Texas asshole. So, yeah, there may be a reason why Texas does not particularly have a reputation as a friendly state. And it's evident from his behavior and his self-description that this is how he believes the world works. Braden apparently believes that if you are an asshole, you get what you want. If you are an asshole to people, you get what you want. And he's actually kind of called out on this, by the way, by some of the participants in the call who advise him, well, we've been able to get certain things done, but you can't be too confrontational. You know, uh, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. Uh, and he's like, no, 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 absolutely not. No, no, just be an asshole. And so that's who he is. And that's one of the reasons why I want to do this episode, because I believe that this incident really is a kind of a microcosm of the Trumpist movement as a whole. If you are, if you lose an election, grow, what you do? Well, ordinary people, they go, they go back to the community, they organize, they try to register more voters, they try to maybe reevaluate their campaign, come up with some different positions. The Trumpists, basically, their answer is, no, you throw a tantrum and you use violence. And you yell and you scream until you get what you want. So this is a toddler mentality. This is, as you know, Braden would would have to admit, an asshole mentality. You get what you want by being an asshole, and that's what these people are doing. They have an organized campaign of assholery, and if they don't get what they want, they're just going to carry on being assholes until the crack. You know, they die um, because that's who they are, and they're proud of it. Braden is unabashedly proud of being an asshole. Um, I don't think it's going to get him what he wants, by the way. He's also not a very smart person, right? That's pretty clear. So at uh, 17, uh, the minute mark 1715, um, the general makes a reference to FCC Butner, which is a complex in uh, Butner, North Carolina, and he claims, quote, Grand Prairie is the office over the southwestern federal facilities. They are the office the prison wardens report to, so we are going to be contacting this warden, but we are also going to be contacting the Grand Prairie BOP office as well. End quote. Okay. Well, Grand Prairie is not really a regional office. Um, it is a major administrative facility. They have, I've mentioned on the show before. They have uh, things, for example, such as designations, right? So the designations of inmates. Uh, that is determined at Grand Prairie. Of course, the main office is actually in D.C., uh, as one might expect. Uh, not certain as to whether or not um, the general is referring to the warden at the, the, the deuce or the complex warden. Nonetheless, um, it appears that the general doesn't have a lot of understanding of how, uh, you know, doesn't have accurate information about the actual organizational structure of the Bureau of Prisons. Um, it, it looks like he's actually misinterpreted the website from the Bureau of Prisons. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but there are regional offices. Uh, th there's no Southwestern regional office, actually. Uh, and in any event, this is Butner, North Carolina. Do you really think that if there was a Southeast region, that it would be under, um, you know, that like, it's not part of the Southeast. I'm sorry, the Southwest. It's part of the Southeast. 
in any event, um, you just, you know, can't even read, right? I mean, if you want to know what the regional office is uh, that Butner's actually under, you can go on the BOP website and find it. But again, reading is fundamental, and these are not people who are particularly good at it. At minute uh, 2040, it's claimed that inmates are being intentionally subjected to food poisoning at FCC Petersburg, which is another facility. It's in Virginia. Uh, it's one of the closer facilities to D.C. Um, and again, you know, you know what? I mean, sometimes you have some food that you don't like. And sometimes maybe maybe there is food that, that is spoiled in some federal prison. Don't go to prison. How about that? You know, uh, again, it's just, okay, great. You know what? I mean, life's not great anywhere, right? <laughs> you know, but if you're, you're having to feed that many people um, and, you know, there's, they're not intentionally subjecting any, anyone to any kind of food poisoning. That's just hyperbole. But, you know, they're, they're obviously in communication with various inmates. They're getting their complaints about conditions at various prisons. Um, they outline several of them. They, you know, make specific allegations um, about several federal facilities and their method that they're going to get these resolved is just calling up the main number for these federal prisons and talking to the person whose job it is to answer the phone. At 2845, uh, there's someone who has the X handle of Perks 4. Um, this is someone who I believe to be the wife of January 6th inmate, Michael Perkins, and she recounts her conversation with her husband shortly after he arrived at USP Atlanta. Um, this is someone who was sentenced to 48 months in prison in August of 2023, assuming I've, I've got I identified the, the correct person. So he was convicted of assault, assaulting multiple police officers with a flagpole by thrusting it into him and also by bludgeoning them repeatedly. Um, so this person, uh, Perks 4, claimed that uh, her husband, whatever, whether it is uh, Michael Perkins or not, was transferred to USP Atlanta along with Ethan Nordeen. And, uh, of course, Ethan Nordeen is one of the leaders uh, on January 6th, along with Joe Biggs, uh, who basically took Enrique Terrio's place after uh, he fled town. So... Um, Nordine, of course, found guilty of seditious conspiracy and other felonies and has a release date of, um, just, it's in 2038. So, uh, you know, his release date is August 7th, 2028. Now, they ask her, by the way, uh, for the name, and this, this person, I mentioned this, Perks 4, is really one of the people on the call who's most interested in getting the names of officers. And so she says she doesn't have the names of officers at USP Atlanta, but she would be asking her husband for this information. Again, for some purpose not specified in the recording, this person wants the names of officers at USP Atlanta, which um, they are fully aware that this is a facility that many of their uh, inmates are going to be transiting through. And so they want the names of officers at that facility. Um, the general arrest addresses this person as Brittany, so her full name may be uh, Brittany Perkins. Um, so even though there's nothing to indicate that Mr. Perkins was a member of the Proud Boys on January 6th, um, this person, Brittany, seemed to indicate that he is now close to Ethan Nordine. And 
she maintained, again, a con consistent interest in obtaining the names of individual BOP staff throughout her participation in the, sta in, in, in the space. So it seems quite likely that she has uh, contacted her husband at USP Atlanta to try to get the names of additional BOP staff for, you know, unspecified purposes. At 3233, uh, Eric Braden claims that there have been, quote, investigations opened up on guards and all kinds of stuff resulting from their campaign of calling correctional institutions where Proud Boys and other January 6th inmates are held. And during the, the space, he continually complains that conditions in the BOP are, quote, torture and a violation of the Geneva Convention. He also claims that they are going to have a special focus on USP Atlanta, and uh, because, again, he anticipates that various January 6th gang affiliates are going to be transiting through uh, USP Atlanta, um, which is a facility that has had its, its own issues. Uh, they, they shut down, they reclosed it. Uh, this was, you know, publicly, there were a number of news articles on the issues at USP Atlanta, which now apparently is being used as some kind of transit hub by the Bureau of Prisons. At the 40 minute and 6 second mark, Suzanne Monk, uh, begins to speak. And this is, again, one of the reasons why I have characterized this as a Proud Boys call, because Monk is the self-described den mother of the Proud Boys. And Monk has been a leader in the effort to organize protests outside the D.C. Correctional Treatment Facility, where January 6th inmates, uh, defendants rather, have been held during their pretrial detention. Monk proceeded to describe a strategy of, quote, finding the place where we can apply pressure, end quote, beginning with researching the identities of BOP staff, such as case managers. So she very specifically is interested in obtaining the identities of BOP case managers for purposes, again, that are not specified. After that, Monk says that she intends to solicit aid from members of Congress to get them to, quote, use the congressional oversight they have the responsibility for, end quote. And she cited her ability to get Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and other members of Congress to visit the D.C. Correctional Treatment Facility as one, a feather in her cap as a success. And she announced her intention to get this for, quote, the rest of the prisons. So she wants to try to put pressure on members of the Sedition Caucus. By the way, I don't expect it would take much to get them to go and visit federal prisons. So the members of Congress who support the insurrection are going to be visiting federal facilities if Suzanne Monk gets her way. Um, you know, I, I also would like to have them visit federal prisons, uh, just a, a, for maybe a longer duration than uh, what they, they intend. She urges the listeners to the space to call not just members of Congress, but also state representatives at state facilities, you know, state legislatures, to urge them to visit facilities. And she cites Andy Biggs and Matt Gates as examples of members who are going to be seeking to BOP facilities. So I don't know if she's been in contact with them on this issue yet. But, you know, again, I don't know. If I was, if I was Matt Gates, I probably would, wouldn't want to go too near uh, federal law enforcement at this point. But... Here's a quote from the transcript I took, quote, If we send them to facilities that we know are horrible, 
there's no way they can clean them up fast enough for members of Congress to look the other way. Places like Petersburg, places like Butner, places like uh, USP Atlanta, these places are falling apart and have been so for decades. Sending Congress to see that truth can have great results moving forward in their oversight of the BOP. But it's a multi-pronged attack. Uh, attack isn't the right word. A multi-pronged point of action, end quote. Which I thought was funny, right? Tell it on herself, right? She's, she's being careful with her language. Oh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be using the, the word attack in the context of these defendants who are charged with attacking the Capitol and attacking Capitol Police and MPD officers and the media. But, you know, she, she catches herself. But, you know, who knows that she doesn't mean attack. It could be a Freudian slip. Now, again, you know, the problem is like to use euphemisms, right? They'll say that they, they want to do something violent, but, you know, in Minecraft, right? Um, so they, they fully incorporate, uh, you know, I guess, irony. You know, they, they like to think of themselves as a, as a smarter and more ironic postmodern paramilitary gang. She also specifically, Monk, mentions her efforts to get Ted Hall, the warden of Northern Neck Regional Jail in Virginia, fired, quote, and possibly prosecuted for his abuses. Monk specifically mentioned that the kitchen ceiling at uh, the uh, medium, the, the deuce of Butner, is falling in, and, quote, they can't cook hot meals. Um, she claimed that her intention is to direct, quote, unpleasant attention to these facilities that have been operating in the shadows happily for decades, end quote. So again, now, are there problems? Presumably, right? I mean, uh, you know, having a caved-in ceiling probably isn't something that prison management would want, and presumably they would want to uh, ask Congress to appropriate funds to fix something like that, but that's the issue, right? I mean, the issue is, you know, no one wants to have a facility that's falling apart, um, and yeah, so, you know, at some point, one would have to assume that they are going to get that fixed. At 4736, Suzanne Monk asks her calls to apply pressure on state governors to have them, quote, stand up and sat, not in my state, not on, and stand, sorry, stand up and say, quote, not in my state, not on my watch, we, we can be activating our governors, end quote. She also announces her intention to be, quote, pounding the BOP hard. We are put here by God for this purpose, to rectify an evil that is happening on our watch for far too long, end quote. But again, of course, until her friends are incarcerated, uh, you know, she, I don't think, had any interest in prison reform. And later on, Monk is going to say some things that I believe uh, really give the purposes behind her call. So Monk and Perkins, both interested in obtaining names of staff, and Monk expressly expresses an interest in trying to get uh, Ted Hall at the Northern Neck Regional Jail fired and possibly prosecuted. At the 52-minute and 50-second mark, ex-handle user Helena Gibson begins speaking and claims that there are 208 January 6th inmates who are at BOP facilities or in the D.C. gulag, as she calls it. Uh, in other words, the, their, their special wing that they have set aside for them where they have rights and privileges not available to other uh, D.C. jail inmates, but 
uh, whatever. Gibson, of course, is another affiliate like Monk of the Proud Boys and advocates on their behalf. She's also a regular attendee at the vigils outside the D.C. Correctional Treatment Facility, uh, according to published reports and her own claims online. Um, she, Gibson claims that she wants to, quote, reach out to the right people and cites the example of an elevator repair in Alexandria as an instance when the activism of her group has been effective. So they were able to get an elevator fixed. Good for them. Presumably that elevator would have been fixed eventually, but okay. You want to take credit for that, I, I suppose uh, you can. At 5710, uh, Eric Braden, the general, claims that the point of his mass phone call campaign is to let authorities know that, quote, it's going to be a major issue if anything happens in the case of a January 6th inmate. Quote, now you have wardens who have deep problems. Now you have deputy wardens who are in deep shit, end quote. Uh, again, um, you know, I, Brayden needs to have more personal knowledge, I think, of the federal prison system. Well, they're not deputy wardens, they're, they're associate wardens, but okay. Beginning at one minute and uh, one hour and 30 seconds, Barbara Turpin, again using the X handle Barbara J. Turpin 2, spoke regarding the circumstances of her son, Dominic Pozzola, uh, again, uh, who's an inmate at SCI Butner 2, uh, and is the person, uh, the reason, supposedly the impetus behind this campaign of targeted harassment, uh, attempting to gather the names of BOP staff. Turpin reported to the group that she had attempted to contact Representative Matthew Gates, but had had, quote, no response, and that she had tried, quote, getting a hold of other people in North Carolina, Butner, no response, end quote. She compared the situation of her son to that of Derek Chauvin and claimed that she feared publicity regarding his case might endanger Pozzola in some way. Um, she complained about, quote, the food situation and that, quote, the guards will actually stand there and watch somebody die. This stuff has, has to come to light, so I guess with my son's blessing, he wanted this to come out to the public. I know it could have terrible pushback on my son, but that's what I prayed to the Lord for, for protection for my child. Okay, so again, interesting. She's been in communication with Dominic Pozzola. Um, elsewhere, by the way, I, mean, she, I don't want to go get too far into the weeds. Uh, she claims that Pozzola is at the end of the month. He's got a certain number of minutes. Uh, that he wants to use this to call his wife and kids. So he's not going to be talking to his mom as much. But at some point, he's also related to her. By the way... Specifically, I want you to call this prison and to try to uh, get these issues addressed. I don't like being in lockdown. I don't like the quality of the food. I think that it's damp and moldy. I think that the air conditioner is running continuously when we have reached a point of the year when perhaps the heat should be on. So he's got these set of issues. The thing is, Pizzola is afraid of publicity and all this stuff, but he had been at Butner at this point for three weeks, okay? You know, I, I think he was transferred there uh, in early November, um, and, yeah, he's been there for, like, three weeks. And there are other inmates who've been dealing with this for, for far longer, but he comes, and the first thing he does is to complain to his mom. This is not, like, you know, this is, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the real inmates are going to think of someone like Pozzola, um, but, you know, this is, 
what an entitled thug he is. I mean, just the, the idea is absurd. You're not going to get, you know, um, anything fixed faster because you've got people who are harassing BOP staff and trying to get their names. You know, for all he knows, the money has already been appropriated uh, to fix the ceiling and there's, you know, a contractor who's already signed up, the contract's been signed, and it's going to happen uh, relatively soon. You know, I, but again, I mean, he doesn't know anything. He's not someone who's like, you know, a sophisticated person. He's not someone who's been in, really in in contact with this community at this facility, but he just comes in, you know, like day one, three weeks later, and he's complaining to his mommy, and he's trying to get hundreds of Trumpists to start calling the institution, and, uh, you know, again, that's not how this works, right? If it did, you know, we probably wouldn't have federal prisons that have roofs caving in to begin with, right? He's not the first person who has family members who have tried to call federal prisons for some reason. Turpin then describes a three-page letter that she has written about the, quote, torture her, she felt her son had undergone at various facilities, and specifically mentioned that the last page was, quote, all about Butner. And she says, quote, the BOP system has been ignored for so long, and we've just got to bring it to the forefront and fight it with everything that we have. Then at one minute, seven, uh, sorry, one hour, seven minutes uh, and ten seconds, Suzanne Monk reports that she intends to hand deliver Turpin's letter to Gates's office on her behalf. Monk then relates an anecdote about Enrique Terrio, uh, who's currently, of course, at FCI Manchester. Um, Terrio reportedly had asked Monk, this is interesting, to dissuade members of her organization from protesting outside the D.C. treatment facility. So we've got the leader of the Proud Boys asking the den mother of the Proud Boys, don't do this. This is counterproductive and stupid. <laughs> Just stop it. And, of course, she's not interested in that, right? So this is fulfilling some kind of ego need that she clearly has, that, you know, she really, really, really needs to be doing in her life. Then there's another speaker at one hour and 20 minutes, uh, a Burt Thacker, who is a candidate for Congress from the 3rd Congressional District in Texas, and he claimed that uh, if elected, one of his first acts would be, quote, ask President Trump to pardon Daniel Perry. Um, Daniel Perry was found guilty of murder in Texas in April 2023. This, of course, is a state-level case, uh, so not eligible for a presidential pardon. Again, these people don't understand how it works. If you're convicted of murder in Texas, you can't be pardoned by President Trump. But this congressional candidate apparently seems to think that that is how it works. Uh, more named inmates that she, they are talking about at 1 minute 26, uh, sorry, 1 hour 26 minutes, Gibson expressed a desire to connect Thakur with Sarah Maccabee, the wife of Ronald Maccabee. Uh, of course, Maccabee was convicted of five federal felonies, including AFO, on October 11th, 2023, in D.C. District Court, and is scheduled to be sentenced on February 29th, 2024. Um, so again, these people are in touch with all kinds of defendants, all kinds of inmates, and uh, they are organized, again, in their effort to harass federal employees, and possibly obtain their names for unspecified purposes. And she also offers to connect Thacker with Guy Reffitt, uh, an inmate that she describes as close to your district. Um, Reffitt has been held at SEI Latuna 
and of course has been convicted with five felony counts. So it's almost like they, they just want to name as many inmates as they possibly can in organizing this campaign of harassment and doxing. One of the more interesting speakers uh, in the space is someone called Pack Chick, and she relates her experience calling prisons on behalf of inmates, and she asks others to, quote, bear in mind that the other person may not want to speak with you, and if they get uppity, they get uppity. She instructed the other participants to always ask their names, again, common thread, and claimed that, quote, these calls to prisons are always kind of a crapshoot. You never know who you're going to get, and if you have to escalate, you know. But again, she actually uh, is trying to talk them down a little bit from the ledge and is saying that they want, you know, it's like, bear in mind that, you know, perhaps you're, this is not, <laughs> you're not going to create a positive situation and that, again, perhaps you, you might want to be a little bit more measured in your tone. Um, Pat Chick also reported calling on behalf of Bart Shively, uh, who'd been sentenced to 18 months for assault on a federal officer and is also a chemotherapy patient. So she claimed that she was able to advocate uh, for the care of uh, Bart Shively. Um, which, again, that's not crime, right? That's not what we're talking about. She actually probably did something good there uh, to be able to get uh, medical care for a sick inmate. Nobody has a problem with that. But that's not what these people are doing. You know, this is a group of assholes who are expressively just calling people up, trying to get their names, and acting like assholes. Pakchik reported that she had to, quote, escalate all the way up to the big guy at the prison, who she described as, quote, very nice. And there's a little bit of a, a disputation between uh, Brayden, the general, and Pakchik. Um, at one minute, one hour, 37 minutes, the general claims that, quote, we are aware of the situation at Petersburg. We are aware there's a guard that's been making threats to prisoners there. We are aware that the food that's being provided there is called food poisoning. We are aware that it's a hub that many J6ers have gone through, you know, that have had issues with the same things that have happened there. We are aware of the lockdowns that they've had, end quote. Which, again, lockdowns are a normal part of prison life. They think they're being targeted with lockdowns, when, in fact, if you go to prison, you're going to experience lockdowns. Perks 4, uh, again, this is uh, Brittany, uh, perhaps Brittany Perkins, asked at one minute, uh, one hour, 37 minutes, 40 seconds, quote, I don't know if it would be more effective if we had a guard's name. I don't know. Again, with the, you know, trying to get the names of, of staff. At one minute, one hour, 38 minutes and 45 seconds, Pat Chick urges them to go ahead and call FCI Petersburg to give them, quote, a shot across the bow for a call the next day at which they would, quote, start calling out names of people who are failing at their jobs. All right, so we finally get the purposes of this collection of names. They want to, quote, get the names of staff so they can, quote, start calling out names of people who are failing at their jobs. Again, it doesn't work that way. The general reports he's going to move ahead with the call that he planned and scheduled for Thursday, November 30th. Um, all right, so finally, at uh, around the one, one hour, 40 minute mark, the general says, quote, I've got Butner locked in now, so we can go ahead and call Butner. Quote, we're going to talk to anybody we can, as high up as we can, 
I guess the main thing is getting the message to the warden. I'm a concerned citizen of the family, and we're trying to address this situation that's ongoing at this facility. End quote. Now again, Braden refuses to give his name, and that's, that is something that causes a problem. Um, and again, he uses this odd phrase that he thinks will work. A concerned citizen of the family. Very specifically, a concerned citizen of the family. That's not a thing. As a matter of fact, it's such an odd phrase that I believe that whenever he uses it, it actually has the opposite effect. It actually has the effect of, of saying people on edge saying like, what does that even mean? Why, what, you know, you be a member of the family, you can be a concerned citizen, but what is a concerned citizen of the family? He's constructed this particular piece of word salad that he's using that he thinks is going to set people uh, at ease, but instead it puts them on edge because it's not even English. It's not a phrase. It's not an idiom. Um, you know, this is, again, as someone who doesn't read and apparently doesn't even speak idiomatic English. All right, so I have summarized basically an hour and 40 minutes of their nonsense, their bloviating, um, and their attempts to try to, you know, psych themselves up, apparently, uh, for a call that they believe is going to get results for Dominic Pizzola and the other members at that institution. And by the way, if you use uh, BOP Inmate Lookup, you can find uh, there are other January 6th inmates there, um, but they don't, you know... They, they really only care about the Proud Boys, uh, to my mind, it seems. In any event, so that gets us up to one hour and 40 minutes. And then we'll go to the call, which I will play and uh, talk about a little bit. And um, there's going to be a long hold, right? So they call the prison. They they get uh, a answering machine thing. Um, and But, you know, I'm going to actually just jump right into the part where uh, prison staff actually answers the phone. Now, again, as you listen, bear in mind, the general is an asshole, self-described asshole, but he's made it his entire personality. And he'll start out nice and then uh, gradually show his ass. Um, just listen for arrogance and entitlement. Uh, the fact that he seems to think that these people are, um, like, it's like a call center or something, that they have to be responsive to him, when in fact these are federal officers who are responsible for the safety and security of the institution. Also, that every person that he deals with, you're, you know, he seems to think that this is like just a secretarial staff or something. Um, these are all people who, when a body alarm goes off, they have to respond to it. So these are people who deal every day with violent inmates, potentially, you know, people who have a history of violence at least, um, and when a body alarm goes off, they have to respond. So he thinks he's a badass, but uh, he's not. And he's just an arrogant, entitled person, perhaps someone who has a personality disorder, uh, not qualified to diagnose in any way. Nonetheless, um, I think that his attitude on this call is really reflective of broader Trumpism as a whole. This is a storm the Capitol kind of attitude that he's expressing uh, on, on a phone call where, again, he thinks he's going to get something done, but actually really isn't. I'm not going to be able to do that on this space. I'm not going to take up the, the space time. Oh. Uh, it's in reference to an inmate. Okay, what's the next thing? 
his name is uh, Dominic Pozzola. P-E-Z-Z-O-L-A, Pozzola. Dominic? And what's your question? Uh, don't have a question. Uh, requesting to speak with the, the warden, deputy warden, or somebody that can uh, pass a message along. I have the family member on the phone with about 300 people on the line right now, uh, listening right now, and the phone call is being recorded. So there's probably going to be another thousand or two that end up listening to this. So uh, wanting to... Uh, communicate with somebody that can can get a message to the warden deputy warden or somebody that uh you know is can can be uh alerted to what we're uh trying to contact you for okay thanks now at this point i think uh, the person who's answered the phone has been very polite been very professional and note that he's he's asked for the warden or the, quote, deputy warden. Again, no such position exists. Um, and he thinks he's going to be able to just call up prison and talk to the warden. Guess what? It doesn't work that way, right? I mean, you know, if you call up Twitter or uh, Tesla, you're not going to get to speak to Elon Musk. Similar situation here. Um, but note, he does ask to talk to someone who is able to address him, right? And he's given that person. He's given a person who's actually able to talk to him about inmates. Uh, but he, has sh he shows no awareness that actually he's gotten what he asks for. He's gotten what he's wanted. Uh, not the warden, but he's got another staff member, someone who's able to talk to him about an inmate. Um, and yet, you know, no, no consciousness to that. In fact, uh, there's a sense in which he, he's getting what he wants. Instead, just more arrogance, entitlement, and assholery. Um, and just, you know, no awareness, no self-awareness whatsoever about what he's doing. Instead, just, you know, being a jerk. And the point I'm trying to make here is, like, both of the staff members who are on this call, I think, you know, really should be are to be commended for their professionalism in dealing with this person who is a, you know, a member of an extremist gang who is advocating on behalf of a violent paramilitary gang. You know, given that, I would just hang up, right? Um, but, you know, they don't. They don't. They actually engage with him until it reaches a point where... Uh, Braden makes it clear that there's there's no there's nothing fruitful that is is going to happen here that he is not going to accept anything that the staff have to offer. So he waits for like another 5 minutes uh because this person is trying to get someone who can actually talk to him. Sorry, I missed but it's actually like only about 2 minutes, but I'll I'll forward to that section. citizen of a family member that is on the phone with me of an inmate that is there 
um, this uh, this conversation is being held with uh, several people that are on the line right now, one being the actual family member of, of the inmate that we're calling about, uh, along with about 300 people that are on the line listening. Uh, it is being recorded and will be listened to by thousands of people later on, just to, to give you the heads up on that, not to, uh, you know, uh, you know so scare you anything. I, I'm a, I am the, a concerned citizen of the family member that is on the phone line right now. Her name is Barbara, and uh, she's wanting to communicate with uh, either the deputy warden or the warden or, or get a message uh, to them about the situation that's occurring. Um, it has to do with uh, uh, basically uh, lockdowns that are, that are occurring right now. Uh, you know, uh, some some well uh, some well uh, well being issues uh, that may be um, being neglected, and some other issues that uh, that she would like to be communicating about. Okay, please hold. Sure. So at this point, again, he's gotten what he wants. He's got someone he can talk to, um, and he's been polite so far, anyway, as polite as he's going to be. Although, again, he's not going to say that his name is Eric Braden, but he's intently interested in the name of the person to whom. He is speaking. Uh, he's on, only on hold for a couple of minutes, and then the call rejoins. Hello, are you still there? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So if you want, if you go to the BOP um, page, um, there's a BOP public page, and there should be one for FBI too as well. Um, if you go to that box and you can address any of your concerns there's an email, email box um for the public that goes directly to um our executive assistant and our public information officer um okay email to that box and they should give you they should respond to you from that box okay we're going to do that uh but would like to to relay, relay this message directly we've done this we, we've done this we, before we now we, we understand what you're saying understand we don't we do not relate any messages. Everything public goes to that box. Okay? Um, so go to that box. That's, that's your first, that's the first step. Go to that box. Um, send your emails, your concerns to that box, and you should have um, a response from our public information officer. Okay? Okay. Well, we've, um, we've done it. Ma'am, what is the name? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, here on the phone call with them. What is the name of that public information officer? If we could get that information from so, you, please. You don't, you don't need it. When it goes to that box, she'll respond to you. Okay? And if you guys, do you guys need to, um, I mean, you can go to BOP.gov or you can go to um, our institution directly, like the federal um, medium two in Butner, and then that box should be updated to BUS1. Okay, well, this is going to... Okay, and what was your name? I'm sorry, what was your name, ma'am? No, ma'am. Just talk to the federal information box, Okay. Okay. I'm just asking you who I'm speaking to right now, what your first name was. So I'm not to you to the, to the box, okay? Okay, ma'am. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, we, we've done this several times, so this is this is actually, this is actually a call. Ma'am, ma can, can, you, can, you, can you let me finish my sentence, please? Nobody has identified themselves to me, so I don't even know who I'm uh, Okay, well, I can give you right now, this Barbara, would you like to speak up uh, as, the, as the mother of Dominic Pozzola right now, so that you can identify yourself? Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking she, about. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Right there, y'all. You see that right there? You see that? Okay. General, that's exactly what happened to me the last time when I called. 
She refused to send me through to anybody higher up. She refused to give me her first name. It's so frustrating. They did to you just now, in in front of all of us on the Twitter space, exactly what she did to me. And it sounded like... Do you see why we do this? Do you see why we do mass communications to these people? This is why we do that, y'all. Okay? This is why we do that. Yeah, 100%. Because that woman having that conversation, that experience 12 times a day is going to make her really tired of that and something does change. Uh, this is also the time, Barbara will do- tell you, Elena will tell you, this is also the time where Suzanne Bunk goes, oh, so you don't want to talk to me? Fine. I'm calling the governor of North Carolina. I'm calling the lieutenant governor. I'm calling the attorney general. I'm calling the prison board. So that's why we we that's why I'm saying these calls get multi layered. You have this experience. You see what we go through. That was a perfect call. We perfectly explained what we were there for. You could tell how nervous they were to have be I'd be having that conversation. And then we carry on and we move that up the chain. We get bigger voices, more powerful voices in North Carolina to start making those phone calls. I can guarantee you things start getting changed. That's what happens. That's how elevators get big. That's how grass gets mowed. That's how men get turned into women. That's how it all happens. <laughs> um, Suzanne, General, also, um, Dan Bishop is the congressman for North Carolina. So we need to get a hold of him, too, Daniel Bishop. Right. So, yeah, we have multiple congressmen in, in North Carolina, actually. Dan Bishop's district is nowhere near uh, the, the district where Butner is located. Um, but, you know, good to know who's a member of the Sedition Caucus. In any event, uh, there you could hear the palpable sense, the endorphin rush that they got when they were able to basically harass this staff member into hanging up the phone on them. Because she doesn't have to listen to that. And again, this is exactly what, uh, you know, the, you know, you can see why Enrique Terrio is telling Suzanne Monk to not engage in this kind of behavior. Um, and yet, you know, I, I wonder, I do wonder if perhaps even Pozzola is going to say, you know what, mom, just, just cut it out, find, uh, new hobbies, hang out with my grand, your grandkids, right? Hang out more with my kids. Uh, don't be doing this. It, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And once again, you see the focus is on getting the names of staff, allegedly because they want to identify people who are not good at their jobs. But really, for some unspecified purpose, we don't even know, right? So, and, you know, to me, to my mind, you know, both of those people, they did a great job in dealing with people who called or basically engaged in a middle school prank. These are people who think they can just go around doing this middle school prank uh, meanwhile, this, these are, you know, facilities where you've got people who are members of, of MS-13, right? You know, they don't need to deal with this. They don't need to deal with these uh, belligerent jerks. And, um, you know, again, uh, more power to them. I, they, I think they did a great job. Um, the, the second staff member particularly kept her cool for far longer than I certainly would have. And, uh, you know, these are people who have nothing better to do with their time, right? And, uh, you know, they, they sound like they're calling from the heart of the Confederacy, you know, uh, and they're, they're dealing with them, them Yankees or whatever, you know. Um, I just think that, it, it, I don't know, these are the George Wallace people, right? And I think that that really came out in the call, particularly uh, when you have one of them using the word uppity, right? You know, um, she does that before the actual call. But this is their attitude. 
they've actually been given someone with, you know, the authority to actually address their concerns, to talk to them, to tell them what they need to do. That's not good enough for them. They want to talk to the warden. And again, they're so fixated on uh, getting names, but they can't even get these things right. They don't know how to use Google properly. So here's, you know, probably the, the smartest person on the call, and let's hear what she has to say about the warden at Butner. Know that, that that there are uh, you know a massive amount of people that are well, paying Michael attention Roach, to it. That's Michael Roach is the warden of the prison, and his email address is here on Google. So I'll put that in the net okay. so you can have it to send him an email. And there's a couple other emails okay, cool. you might be interested in too as well. So, so yeah, Michael Warden uh, Michael Roach is, is not in fact the the warden there. Uh, he's a warden at a state a uh, different facility uh, in Granville. Uh, has nothing to do uh, with the federal prison system. Um, I have no idea how this person came up with this information. But again, not the sharpest tools in the shed. But in the interest of brevity, I will skip ahead a little bit here. Um, and we get to, you know, the multi-pronged attack of this campaign of middle school prank calls to federal prisons and see what it's really about. Um, you know, this is... This is absurd. If you thought the other things that, that happened are silly, this is absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, first of all, again, they want to get names, even though there's open source information that, and what they are able to find apparently is, is completely incorrect. Um, you know, they, they say someone is a warden who's not, you know, he is a warden at a facility in North Carolina, but not, you know, this one. Um, and then they have this belief, you know, they want to get people's names. Um, and they think that they can, by calling the prison, they can effectuate change by talking to these people whose job it is to basically answer the phone. And then when they get someone who's actually uh, able to talk to them, they basically harass that person until they, they hang up the phone. Um, but obviously, uh, another ancillary goal is to try to uh, tie up resources, right? They're trying to tie up staff resources, failing to realize apparently that, of course, you know, they'll, they'll keep answering the phone. Uh, you know, it's like maybe they'll figure out a way to deal with this in some other way, but, you know, someone's going to answer the phone. So here we get to what Suzanne Monk thinks is what, you know, the, the end goal here. What's the end goal? Improvement conditions, get names of prison officials so that they can, you know, make a list and harass people or try to, you know, get them fired, um, as she talks about the, the warden at Northern Neck Regional Jail. Um, but what else are they trying to do? Let's uh, skip ahead to two hours and four minutes into this space. This it's it's letting them know that we're aware, we're awake to this, we're on to this situation. You know, it, it puts pressure. It's it, it is a real thing that actually functions and works correctly. All right, I'm oh, going to yeah, go ahead. Let's do math real quick. I just want to do math for you guys real quick. That call that call took about ten to fifteen minutes of that woman's day. So let's say fifteen minutes. Uh, that's four, if if four people called in an hour, that she spent a whole hour day. She only has an eight hour day. That's thirty two phone calls. Thirty two phone calls means her entire day. Her entire day, every day, every minute of her day was spent taking those phone calls. Now that first phone call might just go okay, 
But by the time she's spending her whole day answering the phone for this stuff, she's going to go talk to the warden to figure out how to make a change. I know that happens because they went to Jessica Watkins in solitary confinement and begged her to make us stop calling. Why? Because poor Michael, whatever his name is, I forget his name by now, had to deal with phone calls. That's probably all his phone message was. He probably spent four hours one day just listening to our messages. That's how it works for this. That's how it works for Congress. That's how it's one or two phone calls will make a dent. But 20 phone calls makes a big day, especially in a day. So it's math. It's math at this point. If we make them spend their day listening to our complaints, I guarantee you our complaints will be addressed if for no other reason to make us stop blowing up their phones. <laughs> so that's it. You know, I mean, that's that's uh, it, that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to get across to people. OK, I mean, and and. You know, for the folks out there, again, for the folks out there screaming, oh, fear, fear, retribution, all this kind of stuff. OK, that's that's not what that's not the result that we've gotten. OK, the, the result that we've gotten is correction of the situation because they don't want to deal with this crap. They don't. They don't want to deal with this crap, y'all. They want it over with. They want it done. They don't want the phone calls. They don't want it, the attention. They don't want this crap. OK, so the, once they finally get that and they understand that this is. It's pretty big, okay, and it's not going to go away unless it's fixed, okay, and that's what we've seen. It gets fixed, <laughs> you know. I'm sorry, but people out there that are saying it doesn't work or that it's bad, uh, they don't know what they're talking about because we've done this. This has been a successful, it's been a, had a 100% success rate, y'all, okay? I mean, 100% success rate, okay, when, when, when <laughs> it's, you know, the proof is in the pudding of what we do, so when, uh, today, when well, y'all General, I'm sorry, I want to add this. And in the long run, this is what's going to make the BOP and this weaponized government want to let go of our friends, okay? Because we're going to get legislation to actually push forward their release. And the weaponized government's going to want to fight back on that. But what I would like is to have Colette Peters and the director of the Bureau of Prisons say, hey, can we just get rid of these J6ers? Because they're costing us a lot of pain, time, phone calls, stress. We can't operate our business normally anymore. Everybody's on our ass all the time. So the, all of this attention is ultimately going to help us when it comes time to put it to the big weaponized government, just let go of the J6ers, and maybe things will change. So all of this pressure adds up on every, every, every level. What we do to give this Bureau of Prisons pressure will ultimately be one of the factors that helps our friends walk free long before these sentences are complete. All right. So there's more, but you get the picture. It doesn't work that way. The narcissism and the entitlement and the arrogance of these people, you know, the idea that you can just call up, be an asshole, and you're going to get what you want, like you're calling customer service, that's not how it works. The Federal Bureau of Prisons doesn't have the power to set sentences. They're not going to be releasing people early just because you're harassing staff on the phone. If anything... Uh, it's going to be extremely counterproductive. You know, actually, most enemies, I think, want to do their time. Like, and they should man up and do their time. Not call their mommies and start complaining that, you know, things are bad after three weeks. Guess what? You've been sentenced to a lot more time than three weeks. And you're going to have to make your peace with it. And you're going to, you know, just do your time. And don't get these entitled narcissists to call people up because... They are not going to release your inmate earlier, okay? That's not how it works. If it worked that way, other family members would have found it out. This would have happened long ago. 
They are not the first people to ever have family members or friends or even political associates who have been in prison. So this counterproductive campaign of prank calling is not going to get them what they want. And they shouldn't be trying to get, you know, information, personally identifying information on the staff of federal officers. And they seem to think that, you know, these are people, you know, these are people who are public servants, right? These are people who have to keep the community safe. And instead, they're dealing with this. Um, there was a campaign, by the way, uh, early on where they were uh, calling veterans suicide hotlines uh, to protest January 6th. Again, that's not how it works, right? It was a public relations disaster. You don't, it's not going to look good for you uh, to call veteran suicide hotlines and tie up the resources there. And this isn't going to get them what they want either. So these are institutions that have been incarcerating people for quite some time. And they know how to deal with all kinds of disruptions. And they will figure something out. Guess what? They will figure something out. Because at the end of the day, they have to go to work every day. And these people, who have nothing better to do than to call and harass people, uh, are going to, you know, give up eventually. Right? So, or, you know, at some point, they're just going to be like, oh, it's you again. Goodbye. Use the box. You know, they're going to figure out a way to just not deal with them. And so this counterproductive, immature, narcissistic campaign really shows what this movement is all about. And what I'm afraid of, you know, isn't necessarily Eric Braden or Suzanne Monk or these other people. I'm worried about one of the 400-plus members. He kept saying 300, and at no point was it ever 300. There were more like four to 500 uh, most points during the call. I'm afraid of the, the person who's quiet. I'm afraid of that person who, in the background, it thinks that he's going to be able to storm a federal facility, uh, you know, that is surrounded by razor wire and has a guard tower with an armed guard. You know, nothing's going to happen, right? But we saw it. We saw it at the FBI in Cincinnati. These are people who believe that they can arm themselves and take on federal law enforcement. And uh, it's a bad idea. It is a, a bad idea for everyone concerned. And, you know, again, um, this, you know, they should get a, a different hobby. Now, the call does go on longer. Um, the space, they call Governor Cooper's office. They talk to the receptionist. And uh, the governor, Braden, says, Yes, ma'am, I'm currently on a call right now with the mother of an inmate at the Butner Prison there in North Carolina. I have some other folks on the line. Uh about 300, and there's going to be a couple thousand more that are going to be listening to this recorded conversation later on, just to give you a heads up, not to spook you or scare you or nothing like that. And Governor Staff says, no, sir, I'm not scared. And that's the thing, right? I mean, the, the call of the governor, you know, um, very polite, but at the end of the day, they're, again, they're not going to get it wherever they want because they're not, they don't even know the, the correct people to call. Um... And then they, they, at the very end, they call Representative Andy Biggs' office. And Suzanne Monk uh, recommends that Biggs visit Butner in Petersburg and then leaves her phone number on the line and says, uh, I just realized I put my phone number on while I'm recording. That's fine. Everybody knows that already. I do dox myself more than Antifa does. Um, which, again, whatever. You know, I'm not going to give this woman's phone number because I think that, like, 
She is just, you know, she is, she is in, in effect, uh, a waste of time. But they are connected with a dangerous movement. Uh, they have, you know, people who are, have a demonstrated willingness to use violence against federal law enforcement. And so the fact that they are collecting the names of federal staff, uh, federal law enforcement officers, is a concern. And the fact that they think that by calling up, up these, you know, prisons and trying to get them released, that's not going to happen. That is not a thing that is ever going to happen. So um, they should probably just stop doing it. Find a different hobby. Uh, I hear they've come out with all kinds of really wonderful uh, different kinds of, you know, crosswords. Those are good. Uh, jigsaw puzzles, you know, knitting, all kinds of things, gardening, um, but not this. You know, this is not productive use of anyone's time, but, you know, they're going to go ahead and do it, and uh, the BOP is going to find a way to just ignore them because none of this works this way. This is not how you get people released early. How about some actual contrition? How about some actual acknowledgement that, no, you don't get to assault law enforcement and vandalize federal property in broad daylight, on video, and not expect some consequences? So, well, thank you very much for your listenership. Uh, wish you happy holidays. I do have a guest scheduled for the next episode, which I am very excited about. Um, hopefully that will move forward. And um, until then, I will be doing lots of reading in my spare time, of which I, I do not really have very much. Nonetheless, uh, keep up with the reading, and happy holidays. <laughs>